we go. Up and away we go with part three of Scott Peterson. Uh, it's been a long road, and I'm sure everybody's ready to move past this. It was between this case and John Bonet, um, <sighs> which I think another podcast I saw has covered that one. So I'll probably check theirs out. Pretty sure it's the near death dolls. Ladies, oh, okay. they uh, yeah, they did that. So that's cool. So we had the same kind of idea with the December murder mysteries. Oh, I don't know if I could have spent that long on John Bonet. Yeah, I would definitely be. I would definitely be depressed, like more than I already <laughs> am. But um, I'm just gonna jump in because there's a lot to uncover here, unpack here. I mean, I wish we had uncovered a few things, but if anything, I feel like there's gonna be more questions than answers after. Uh, we wrap it up with this part three, but I'm just going to go ahead and jump in. And yeah, feel free to ask me anything or let me know your thoughts as I go, because I didn't really put any pauses in between these topics. Okay. For five so. seconds, I was like thinking you were talking to the listeners, but you were definitely talking to me. I mean, all of you. We're, we're going to go for it. And I hope the listeners have questions or like hadn't heard all of this stuff because it was definitely news to me whenever I saw it on this docu-series and um just a reminder I used the murdy the murdy oh, I can't even the murder of Lacey Peterson on Hulu it's an A&E uh docu-series that they did so this is part three which is going to cover episodes five and six of the docu-series with this part of the trial being very Amber Fry heavy. The jurors didn't take long to develop anger towards Scott, which helped undo the hard work that earlier sessions had brought to the prosecution. Like I mentioned last time, Lacey's parents walked out the first day that the tapes were being heard in the courtroom. It was just too hard for them to hear Scott being all giggly like a little schoolboy while they're there because their daughter has been murdered with their grandchild. So They walked out, and there's footage of them walking out of the courthouse. So the story is still being reiterated what the prosecution is saying, that he killed her the night before the 24th or that morning and drove her body 90 miles from their home to the Berkeley Marina. But you made a good point to question whether he took her with him to the warehouse before killing her, because if she would have willingly got in the truck, there's no questions asked. Like, it doesn't look suspicious. He's not carrying anything weird covered in tarp. Mm-hmm. she's just getting in the car or in the truck and then they're going together before he does the job yeah it definitely would have saved him some time or i mean some lifting like heavy lifting uh, which we will see how important that part is when it comes to the boat experiments which i have been aching to get to i'm no gym expert but i don't know if scott could have put 150 pound body uh, over the edge of his boat with five anchors attached, let alone like moving her from the truck to the boat, yada, yada, mm-hmm. especially with the scene or like struggling or like leaving blood. You know what I mean? Like they found no, they found no forensic evidence at all. Like no clean spots, no um, suspicious stains or anything like that. Um, so that's just where I'm coming from here with that. Nancy drew, Nancy drew, Nancy Grace. <laughs> Guys, I drank a lot of alcohol last night, and I'm like, I'm still kind of like recovering. Um, it's the evening of the next day, but I'm still recovering. Um, so Nancy, not Nancy Drew. Nancy Drew's solving some different mysteries. Um, <laughs> Nancy Grace uh, wonders if she had been alive at that point, like at um, 
at that point of uh I don't know why I put that. I might even I might even just cut that whole thing out or maybe I'm going to come back to it. Let's see. The prosecution had a fisherman fisherman come forward who stated that a 150 pound fish could be thrown over without the boat. I'm about to block the water off, but that's inhumane. Yeah, it's okay. Francis, get over People here. literally listened to you eat fucking corn chips. I think that never big. happened again. <laughs> I still haven't even looked at how many listens that actually has because that would have been my fault. Let me see. <clears throat> Little cuddly. Little cuddly baby. Um, Which one was that? Oh, yeah. Never mind. Mucho, mucho amor. I straight up put that in there. We had 40 plays. Oh, okay. Well, I guess it did, just didn't uh, deter. I guess it's just distracting me is why I'm like, mm-hmm. everybody sit down. They've been sitting down being good all day. Because while my mother-in-law is here, I take them out like in segments and then bring them in here and then go hang out in the living room with everybody. So they've they don't been cry when they're day. in the room? Mm-mm. At first they will or like, oh my goodness. Or like after a while, they'll start getting restless and that's when I'll come. Uh, go play outside or whatever with them and then bring them all back so, so far i don't know they're doing fine they haven't destroyed the room or anything yet either so <laughs> i just put the tv on for them and leave like a good mom <laughs> um you just pop up the tablet <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly all right um okay so um so yeah, the fisherman said that a 150-pound fish could be thrown over the side of a boat without it capsizing, um, and they had brought up that it's an aluminum boat, pretty small boat that uh, Scott has. Mark had purchased a boat and set it up for a test, and he had a guy go out on the boat, I think this is Mark Garagos, so his attorney, to try to throw a 100-pound weight over, and he couldn't do it without the boat sinking, and there's video of, of this. Uh, the boat would capsize on one side and just start sinking from that side wherever he would um, try to throw the weight over. And um, they say that even if Scott could somehow get the body over the edge of the boat, there might have been scratches or something on the side of the boat um, that would give them some sign that he did that. But I want to know what weight class the kid they chose for the test was because, I mean, if they chose somebody that was scrawnier than Scott, there's just a lot of things to come into play when it comes to, like, performing experiments or else it just takes away – it discredits the whole thing most of the time. So they tried it four times, and they made a comment that the kid almost drowned three of the four times, according to Garagos in the series. And Judge DeLucci – uh, excluded these test results and it didn't count towards the defense. So here's another boo-boo. Week 13 of trial brings new evidence to the courtroom on August 31st, 2004, uh, the canine searches. So they did have a dog go out and sniff for her body or f- just for her presence in general out at the marina. Mm-hmm. A dog handler of 20 years had her dog sniff the marina for Lacey's scent and the dog hit on the dock where Scott launched his boat from. And she claimed her dog could even hit a scent that was in a vehicle. But then experts came forward and said that's completely not true. It's an unreliable thing to think that a dog can sniff somebody through a vehicle, even if like they just drove like her body up the dock and then didn't. Franklin? <laughs> Stop. He's like, we're talking shit about dogs, mom. 
So they said that that's not true. A dog cannot smell a scent from inside of a vehicle. It has to be directly like in contact with whatever the um, area is. So, however, the very next day, evidence is presented that the dog had failed his certification test. Oh, God damn it. So then a video is pulled up of the dog walking in the wrong direction during the exam. And yeah, so the excuse where he hit on the marina was simply that the canine hit on a contaminated scent that was on Scott somehow. But it is dis- but it discredited the idea that Lacey was confirmed to have been there like ever, like in the first place. Mm-hmm. So whatever it was, they brought a new dog or dogs to the marina and they didn't detect her scent like at all whatsoever. But I mean, how long, how long the scent yeah. there? You know, it's a very windy area. It's like, you know, people are constantly going through there. There's fish. There's other scents. I don't really know how that works, but um, maybe the scent was like washed away or blown away by the wind by then. Um, so how much would you have relied on that evidence, do you think? Or like what value do you hold canine cadaver dogs services? I think, um, I think for the most part, they are pretty reliable, but... Like we said, like, it depends on how long it's been and all of that. Like, mm-hmm. if they were specifically smelling for Lacey, like, you'd have to do it, like, within the day. Oh, yeah, so that's like, a fresh. Yeah, as fresh as it could be. And I guess, like, if it's, like, a cadaver, that would also be another thing. But they weren't doing that. Yeah, that's what's tough about it. Because I want to say that I would put a lot of trust in whatever the dogs are smelling. But at the same time, you don't know like how long it's going to really yeah. be fresh. Mm-hmm. Um, unless that's like not a thing. I have no idea. But I'm with you on that. So in an audio tape from one month after Lacey went missing between Detective Craig Grogan of the Modesto Police Department and Scott, uh, it went a little like this. Uh, Craig, tell me, what do you know? Like, what happened to her? Do you know where she is? And he said, well, I know we're looking for her and where I think we're probably going to find her is in the bay. It's only a matter of time. Uh, We can end all of this for you. I mean, think about it, really. And Scott says, I'm not involved in my wife's disappearance. We're going to find her and I need your help in doing that. Uh, I just hope your department's following the leads. I want to find her. Then that's all there is to it. Yeah, I'm going now. Bye. And then Craig says, bye. So Scott just jumps straight to the point, like, don't even try to tell me. Like, I can take the easy way out and just confess because I have nothing to do with it. Uh, so that was played on the docuseries. And it's weird because it was like a subtle hint. I don't know if he was supposed to be doing this, but he pretty much told Scott that they were on to him. And this was right after she went missing. So I don't think they're supposed to tell suspects that they're suspects mm-hmm. right away. Mm-hmm. Um Cause then that's when they start acting like shady and like not talking as much or not giving as much information. Cause then they're like, why should I, they think it's me, you know? Yeah. So that was something to consider. Uh, so next we have, uh, they then presented. So once again, it's displayed, uh, in tape how, or on tape, how he says the same things, not involved in her disappearance. And I want to find her along those lines, things like that. Um, the evidence against him once again is circumstantial with the bodies being found where he said he went fishing. They then presented the baby's body was disposed of between Brooks Island and the Berkeley Marina, about a mile away from Lacey, where she was found. And so the idea here is she was put in the water with her extremities secured with anchors so that she was at the bottom 
of the ocean and the currents eventually expelled the baby who floated up first. So that's why his body was found the day before hers was. This is what they're saying. Mm -hmm. Um, And when her body was discovered, only the torso was able to float up. So that means that her body parts would still be down there attached to anchors unless they got, you know, eaten up or, you know, washed away. So that's, that's where they're coming from now with the next idea. Um, And then here's what we broke into last time. It's where they bring up the ocean's effect on the body. All organs were missing, uh, and the experts said it was due to tidal action. There was a map presented with the weak and strong currents labeled and the direction that they moved in, with like the rising sea level in the adjacent ocean pushing the water into the bay, creating flooding tidal currents, and the waves tore her body apart. And that's what that that's what they're um, leaning on. So they have an expert trying to explain all of that in court. So then uh, that's what the prosecution was saying, and. But the docuseries, they argue that it didn't happen that way. Fish don't chew apart cartilage and ligaments and bones don't disintegrate or float off. They would have found like the whole body is what they say. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're, they're pretty much denying that tidal action has anything to do with how her body was found. Um, every piece of evidence was dismantled, but the fact that he was fishing where they found her um, is what mattered. That's what mainly stuck out to everybody. Mm-hmm. Then it's argued in the series that the news told the public where Scott was fishing, but is it a stretch that someone might frame him since it was easy to believe that he did it? Like, you know, somebody heard, like whoever had her saw it on the news and they were like, oh, easy. I'll just put her body over there and they're going to think it's him. Mm -hmm. So the prosecution is also saying that Connor died on the 24th of December 2002 when his mother was killed and the defense leaned on the theory that Connor lived longer to say Scott couldn't have been responsible for his death. So that's what they're targeting next is, okay, this is a way we can prove that Scott didn't do it at all. Like he didn't do it at all, but he definitely didn't do it on the day they said, which is the 24th, the day she went missing. Mm -hmm. So OBGYN Dr. Charles March is brought to the defense on October 21st, 2004, and he calculates Connor's date of death for December 29th, 2002. And the paperwork states that the time of death could even possibly be sometime mid-January. And March went on to say that the prosecutor's expert, Dr. Gregory DeVore, witness, the witness, uh, he he was a witness for the prosecution. He had a flawed testing method and he used um, incorrect results. But Dr. March was also beat down during cross-examination and he visibly fell apart. Like he got upset and he said, cut me some slack. Like it was just very unprofessional. So the jurors had stopped listening and they put their notepads down and everything. And and, uh, the attorney, Garagos, was obviously disappointed in – it's like he should have selected a different OBGYN because he just broke down up on the stand. Um, Which discredited uh, just by how – it just discredited everything he said. So Mm -hmm. it was just a mess. So – here we have the dog brought up again. She was a key witness that gave a timeline clue. And the dog, I mean, Mackenzie, the 1018 timeline that uh, they seem to be really going off of that because she's sure that she put Mackenzie in the yard by 1018 a.m. that day. Karen Service, having said she found the dog at 1018, however, other witnesses claiming to have seen her walking after that time contradicts the timeline built around the dog being found. In his opening statement, Garagos had mentioned he was going to bring those witnesses who saw Lacey forward, but they decided not to because the contradictions would have hurt the defense rather than helped it. So they were just so focused on a time and just not that they saw her at all. Like, 
You know what I mean? Like if they know they can rely on, at least they saw her, they don't know what time it was, but they just did. They just decided not to bring any of those witnesses forward. Mm -hmm. So here's where they bring up the other female dog walkers in the neighborhood and they, they put them on the screen and blur out their face and everything. And it's, it's ladies of like all heights, all sizes. And the dogs are not golden retrievers. There's all kinds of dogs that they're walking but just to clear the air about people having mistaken the the weekly dog walkers or whatever, they bring them forward and ask them about uh, how they walk their dogs, like when and where and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. One woman claimed she understood why she was brought in because she was the most similar in appearance to Lacey. She was like a shorter lady. She was kind of round. Um, and so she's like, okay, well, I could have passed for a pregnant woman. I might have had a shorter haircut too. And so I might have looked like Lacey. Oh my God. However, she is very strong in her belief that she wouldn't have walked her dog that day because she would have been cooking for Christmas. So she wasn't like a routine, like, I'm going to walk the dog no matter what day it is kind mm-hmm. of person. So she is pretty pretty sure that she did not walk her dog that morning. November 1st, 2004, the closing arguments for the prosecution begin, and they made the whole thing about how Scott hated his life, hated his wife, and didn't want what he had anymore and got rid of his lifestyle. Rick Distasso really played on the jury's emotion where, and here's the peak of the presentation, they displayed a photo of the pregnant and glowing Lacey Peterson at her work Christmas party alone followed by a shot of Amber and Scott at her work Christmas party and he's all over her so they played on those emotions like crazy the news are blowing up because of this and it's an election year so they're double watching like people are for sure like right after they update on the electoral votes and everything they're like and uh, breaking news with the, the Lacey Peterson case type thing so the news of the end of the trial is spotlighted in the media The following day, November 2nd, 2004, the closing argument for the defense is here with Mark Garagos falling flat. He was not the same uh, guy that he was on day one, claiming that he would prove that Scott was 100% stone cold innocent. He had a bad day on the wrong day is how they described it. However, it didn't sink in that the other side had no proof either, yet they both knew They didn't have proof, but they knew Scott did it. And that's just what everybody was going with. Mm -hmm. So the jury goes back to deliberate on the case. And the jurors featured in the docuseries open up about how they felt. And um, most were nervous. And it was information overload without being able to talk to anybody about it. Like, could you imagine if you were a juror on this case and, like, so much stuff is being, being told to you and you can't even, like, tell me about it? Like, oh, shit. Oh, yeah. Um, November 9th, 2004, one juror admits that she looked online to confirm a rumor. So another Mm -hmm. juror tells the judge and snitches on her. And so she's removed from the jury. And this is November 9th. Like they were wrapping it up, like deliberating and she blew it. So they have to then replace her and start all over again with deliberations. Oh my God. And this is when I think her nickname is Strawberry Shortcake is brought in, the red-haired woman that's uh, very loud-mouthed in some of the interviews after the, the whole thing is over. Oh, yeah. Rochelle Nice, uh, she is said to have been very emotional uh, right away and came in saying that Scott was guilty. Like, she just already came in with her mindset. So. Mm-hmm. They didn't catch that, however, and I'll bring her up again later because she, she becomes kind of an issue. The jury, however, had already started their deliberation system. They had put notes all over the board. They, they knew how they were voting about things. 
with the goal for a fair trial, and they used any information that they had from the trial, breaking down the timelines and everything. But whenever they brought her in, they had to start all over again and erase everything. Mm -hmm. And here's something that got my attention. Gregory Jackson was made the foreman because he seemed most logical and well-versed. I believe he was like an attorney and a, and a doctor at the same time. And so he was part of the jury and they just made him kind of the leader of the whole thing. And he had stacks and stacks of notes. They chose him to kind of direct the sessions. Mm-hmm. He apparently dragged out certain topics that they were over-discussing and he was pro-innocent. Uh, while they were mostly guilt-leaning, they wanted a new leader. So then they go to the judge again and they said... They even said that one guy threatened the foreman. So the foreman's like, I'm out of here. I feel scared. <laughs> so Jackson goes to the judge and says that the atmosphere was scary and the jur- and the jurors would yell at and scream at him. So the news have now heard about this and it's, it's assumed that the jury is just in chaos. So everybody knows like they've already replaced one and then now the foreman is trying to leave because they're threatening him or acting threatening towards him just because he's innocent leaning for Scott. Mm-hmm. So what do you think about that? Like, how would you feel if you were, like, trying to be logical and everybody was like, oh, my God, you love Scott? I would be really fucking pissed. Me too, because, I mean, you're doing your civic duty, so you're doing it, like, how you think you're supposed to do it and be honest and take in everything. It would be really hard to keep my cool. Same. That's how I feel. I'm like, um, hello. So on November 11th, 2004, a new juror is seated and they now have three different ones from the originals with two being the recently replaced ones. Because don't forget, at the very beginning, they had to replace another lady who mentioned that she was already like going to fry Scott or whatever. November 12th, 2004, they begin new deliberations again, and they ask the big questions like, was it premeditated? And they all took a vote, and all 12 said Scott was guilty. And it seemed so quick to reach a verdict after having to start over again, like just one day with the new jury member. Mm -hmm. Mark Garagos was not there. He didn't think that they would be ready by then, so it was just like they brought everybody back in the next day, or, you know, on the 12th, and... It was, like, so weird. Not everybody was prepared. Okay, so here's the big news. And by 2 p.m. that Friday, Scott Lee Peterson was found guilty of the murders of both Lacey and Connor. The crowd outside was cheering for the guilty verdict. The Petersons were led out, surrounded by crowds yelling at them. And a two-week hiatus, the next decision was whether he should be put to death. So they took two weeks to decide if he should be put to death. Um, And during that time, a bartender came forward claiming that a group of jurors were drinking and discussing the case in his bar. Mm -hmm. And and this bartender was a neighbor to lawyer Paula Canny, who was analyzing the case. She was just an attorney. I don't think she was directly working on the case, but she's um, featured a lot in this docuseries. And she um, she's the one that the bartender told all this information to. So uh, he said he heard we're going to get Scott Peterson. And so she reported that to the judge and the judge held a hearing. Juror number eight, John Gunasso, who happened to be the guy who threatened the foreman earlier. uh, Well, he had talked about potential book deals and that the decision was made to put Scott to death. The bartender was brought in subpoenaed and juror eight remained on the trial. So it's assumed that the bartender was like, "Never mind, I don't care to, you know. Yeah. I'll plead the fifth or whatever he, I guess, I don't know why, but they show him on the docuseries. He's like a little older mustached guy. So he remained on the trial, even though it was like a 
little bit of a controversy there. Uh, but the bar the bartender apparently didn't tell the judge what he heard, but Paula knows what the bartender told her. And so that's why it's like kind of like it sucks. Each juror had to be able to possibly put someone to death. Sharon Rocha was called to the stand and spoke about Lacey and Connor. So this was um, before they had to decide if he was going to be on death row or not, or, you know, put to death. Mm -hmm. And she goes up on the stand and talks about Lacey and Connor. And she channeled Connor apparently and said, literally as she was pretending like she was Connor and said, why are you killing me, daddy? Why don't you love mommy? And she sobbed and screamed at Scott Mm -hmm. and it was gut wrenching. Like she completely just unloaded her whole like it was horrible to watch. So every member of the jury and most of the courtroom was sobbing with her. So they fixed the penalty at death. And once again, the crowds cheered. Uh, so here's the next controversy. The jurors are made celebrities. The statements made to the press made it obvious that the decisions were emotion led and emotion based. And when questioned in detail, they didn't know how Scott did it. Like they would go on Nancy Grace. They would go on Larry King live And they would be asked specific questions like, what did you think about this? And how do you think he went about it if you think he did it? Blah, blah, blah. And they said they they pretty much like gave vague answers that that the defense gave, which is like, yeah, he killed her on the 24th and got rid of her body, you know, on the boat or whatever, but not like how exactly how. Yeah. So it was it was sketchy listening to those interviews. Um Apparently, it didn't matter how. It just mattered that they knew that he did it. Um, Details like what channels he ordered after she went missing were leaked. And this was a clue that she was never coming home, according to uh, people who think he did it. Because he got hardcore porn channels and a Playboy why would that mean no. that she's never coming home? Like, what? I don't know. They, they thought, I think that they thought once she was gone, he was walking around with no clothes on, like being sloppy and jerking off all day or something. Oh I don't know what they thought. Um, but people did bring up a good point that he might have just had like a sex addiction and that's just how he was like stressed out. But I don't know. It's just porn channels. Like, yeah, it doesn't. Was I mean, he not allowed to order new channels whenever his wife's missing. Was he I'm not, not allowed to-, to masturbate just because she was missing? I don't. I don't I- He's like, oh, she can't walk in on me ever again. So now I have these channels. And that apparently was a sign to them that she was never coming back. I hate- they really say that. I just don't like how people just automatically or like this is how they're supposed to act like you have no fucking idea yeah Mm -hmm. that's how i feel i don't know even though i don't like him i still like it's (laughs) people literally brought everything out against him they were just like look and it uh, it doesn't even matter like it doesn't i know i know did they prove it beyond a reasonable doubt though is the main question Mm -hmm. um whenever they were saying he's guilty Pat Harris, the defense lawyer, believed it was linked to the burglary. So here we come back around again. Carl Jensen, a PI, found the tips that were called in. So uh, they keep handing the paperwork to different hands every every, um, whatever few weeks or whatever, because people are still curious about the case, I'm assuming. Mm -hmm. And so get this. Lieutenant Aponte had called in Modesto PD saying that Lacey had gone across the street and had confronted the burglars and that they threatened her. I'll come back to this. I'll come back to this. Wait. So this was based upon a taped conversation between an inmate and a person in Modesto that just happened to be inmate, the inmate's brother. 
Um, so here is the sixth and final episode's contents. And that's when, like, it left me with my jaw hanging. I was like, wait, they didn't bring this up in, in the courtroom that there were other people that were talking between each other, not even telling the cops anything. And it was mentioned that she was threatened by these burglars. And that's just, it left me freaking out. So on the sixth and final episode... It starts with March 17th, 2005. The gag order is over with and the people on the prosecution side got to speak in like a press conference type deal. It's uh, still stood that nobody knew when the crime occurred, where or how. Um, and Scott Peterson's appeal was filed into, in 2012 and was making its way through the California legal system. And there's three general areas uh, of the appeal. And um, they said... One was jury selection. In the jury selection, Judge DeLucci made a decision where if one of the potential jurors was opposed to the death penalty, they were dismissed, and that's not okay. They shouldn't have been excused because of the personal of their personal opinion. It should have been asked, like, even if you don't agree with the law that there's a death penalty, could you apply the law to the facts um, of this case? Mm-hmm. And uh, then they aren't excused. They're just like, okay, if you're going to do this you know, the right way, even though you have your own opinion about the death penalty, you can stay. Um, But that's not what happened. So then, of course, they're going to have a bunch of people agreeing that somebody should die if he's guilty. Um, Because if everybody is fine with putting someone to death, then why even vote on the second verdict? Um, The second part of the appeal was the evidence that the prosecution included. Trimble was 75% wrong uh, or was wrong 75% of the time. And Trimble is the canine uh, that they that smelled her at the marina. And he was wrong 75% of the time when they tested him. And it was just very inconsistent. Second, the hydrologist, the one that was talking about those tidal currents, had not studied how bodies of water move. What? They would have answered where the bodies were thrown and where they would end up. Um, if he had known, like, if that was part of his presentation and he had not done studies in this practice evidence that was excluded was the third part so the first part is the jury selection second part is um the dog and then the hydrologist and then uh the third part is the defense tested the body throwing in the ocean but they didn't put it as part of the their defense the judge found that the tests were not similar enough to um how the prosecution thought it happened Ugh, but you're going to get mad later when I tell you what they did consider useful in the case. Oh um, so they did not present the tape of the guy uh, falling into the water over and over again, trying to like get that stuff out of the boat. Mm-hmm. So then the judge allowed the jury to get in the boat and tested the stability of the boat by rocking it. But they tested it on land, like in the fucking parking lot. What the fuck is the point of that? Like, So it's not going to rock. Yeah. You can throw anything out of a non- I can't. Yeah, that is I don't the understand. Best thing I've ever heard in my entire because life. Because even if it's not used in court, allowing the jury members to like do that kind of thing just shows them like, okay, this is what they're considering as like, oh, duh, he can throw anything out of the boat, but it's not on the water. The water yeah. makes a huge difference. Yeah, it's gonna rock. It's gonna sway. It's gonna. That was uh, a anyway. shitty experiment because that oh, yeah it doesn't man. make any fucking sense. Yeah, it was, I was mad. So um, when convicted of a capital offense in California, uh, there's an appeal and the state habeas proceeding takes place. Uh, Habeas? Habeas. 
H-A-B-E. How do I not know? Anyways, the habeas allows for a fresh look at everything in the case and avenues that were not pursued. So I'm pretty sure like new people are brought in and they bring the whole thing out again, all these files and documents. Mm Mm-hmm. And they take another look at it. So November 2016, Linda Smith and the woman who started the internet forum work on his appeal. They read through pages from the case and looked for inconsistencies. These women all joined together and organized for his appeal. So it's like his sister-in-law, his sister, and these women that all think that he's innocent. And it it just happens to be women. I'm not like going to – I think there might have been a few men – they mostly just show his sister-in-law, his sister, and then the lady from the internet forum uh, discussing all these things. So an important thing his sister-in-law brings up is how the police mentioned Scott's alibi on TV so that everybody knew where he had been fishing, but not specifically where. He had gone to a shallow area, according to Scott, but that part wasn't used. They just said um, the general area between Brooks Island and yada yada. And they asked people to call in um, and photos were shown asking if they had seen his truck or boat so that they could corroborate his story. From that point that she, from the point she went missing up until the body was found, there was complete access to the shore. So it wasn't even like a closed crime scene or anything like that. They started discussing how a boat wouldn't have been needed because you could drive right up to the shore. So Mm. this is where it gets interesting. It's like, okay, somebody figured out that he was fishing there and they're just going to drive and reverse their truck or whatever into where the shore is and then dump the body and the body will just wash up again. Um, Or they could have just made it, just put it along the shore. It never was in the water. It just depends Mm -hmm. um, how you look at it. So they bring that point up and it's brought up that there was tape pinning baby Connor's ear down and twine that was tied around his neck. Um, so they just bring up how the bodies were found again, and uh, they just wonder if he was handled outside of Lacey's body. Well, yeah. How else would there be something on him if, like, it's something mm-hmm. like that on him? Yeah, yeah. It, the tape would have had to be, even if it accidentally stuck to his ear, it would have had to be outside of the water. But the twine, yeah. I could see it wrapping around if, like, the waves were strong enough or he was swirling around in the water. Guess, like, yeah. But, I mean, where did that even come from? Exactly. Well, there's a lot of stuff in the ocean just floating around, oh, but I don't know. It, it still is possible that he could have been handled outside of um, her body, though. I did forget that uh, the oceans are polluted with fucking trash. I forgot. Mm-hmm. I know. I know. It's, like, so sad. Um, so the next point the docuseries makes is that Modesto is not as safe a town as people portrayed it or might think. (laughs) The airport district specifically has like a drug problem and there are shootings, like there's, there's gangs and stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, so in May, 2003, there's talk of the satanic cult and how it seemed the baby was handled outside of Lacey's body. Um, Nancy Grace shuts down all the possibilities because they just sound so outlandish. Um, and between 1999 and 2002, seven pregnant women went missing. Oh, God. Three from Modesto and four um, within 80 miles of Modesto. That's a lot. Yeah. That between is. 1999 and 2002. And they were all pregnant, seven of them. Evelyn Hernandez and Lacey went missing six months apart. From each other. Um, And she was also eight months pregnant. 
she washed up in the same condition as Lacey did in the same area, and her baby was never found. But the black the electrical tape. Without, yeah, that's in the same condition. I have, um, I have a spreadsheet in a second with um, the missing women that I'll read off of. Um, but the black electrical tape holding the baby's ear folded over and the twine around its neck and chest um, just um, make it seem like they did handle the baby outside of Lacey's well, yeah, body. The tape, because the tape wouldn't be able to stick. Even if it came out of the water, like mm-hmm, if it was mm-hmm. from the water, it wouldn't have stuck on him, especially if it's electrical tape. That's how I feel too. I don't know why they would have put the tape on there, but it, it must have been put on the baby somehow, like uh, on purpose. And there was a meth problem, uh, who, and they were apparently the meth was so bad that they're said to believe in demons and in like they're in a bad headspace. Like it's a really deep meth addiction that a lot of people apparently have there. Um, and these things made it seem like they were grasping for straws, but who knows if they're, if they would have kept looking into it, maybe they would have found something to the right of Yosemite. It's like the street, I think is the airport district. And that's not too far from the nicer neighborhoods. It's literally right across from where Lacey and Scott lived. Mm -hmm. Um, so the highest crime rates in Modesto and with six criminal incidents occurring the night of December 23rd, 2002 to the next morning, it just seems like something they should have considered. Yeah. Um, they show a map and one incident was five blocks away from them. Laudis Avila had a clothing store and it was Christmas Eve. She saw a suspicious car across the street. This is the day that Lacey went missing. Mm-hmm. She saw a suspicious car across the street and they were looking at her and she was afraid of them. Uh, the way they looked at her and how they looked like they were killers, like they just had dead eyes. And they have her in the docuseries discussing this event. Mm-hmm. Um, she saw one of the guys come into her store and it was clear that they were going to do something to her. She ran to the back and hid and called the police. And when the police came, she explained what happened. Matt Dalton is the only one who looked into her story. And he's the um, investigative attorney that uh, was really one-on-one with Scott a lot. And mm-hmm. um, also went out and looked into stuff like this even though he wasn't a private investigator or anything like that he was just doing his attorney uh business so he's the only one that looked into her story and she was traumatized after what happened to Lacey. she heard about it and she said that it could have been her um her daughter was born the day that connor was supposed to be born oh i know so i think she has like some survivor's guilt maybe but she just is so scared that that could have been her and luckily she saw the guy come into her store from where she was at in the store and she just ran back and locked herself up Mm -hmm. um she was okay but um the sightings just were not investigated and um they just thought that by 9 50 to 10 18 he had already killed her and she was in his truck it gets even crazier Detective Grogan testified that Lacey's sightings were not a priority. During the trial, uh, pages of case documents were fed through a scanner and some handwritten notes from the mailman were not seen by the jewelry. The jewelry? (laughs) (laughs) The jury. And by what I mean with the scanner thing is they put documents... uh, and they expect them to feed one at a time through the scanner so that it's in the system. But sometimes handfuls of paper that are like stuck together go in all together. And so they miss some information. I can't with this. This makes me so mad. Anyway, wait till you get this. Listen. So uh, from t- 
1035 to 1050, Russell Graybill, he's the mailman, he delivers the Peterson's mail. These notes were not seen by the jury. Um, and he is required to scan in his delivery times into the computer during his routes. So he his testimony would have been definitely important and would have weighed heavy mm-hmm. if he had been if they knew anything about this. So like I said, he delivers to their house between 1035 and 1050. The gate was open and McKenzie was not barking as he usually did. He was very familiar with McKenzie and no matter where McKenzie was in the house, he would definitely bark and Graybill would definitely hear it every single time. So this was a strange occurrence that he like noted on that day that McKenzie was not barking and the gate was open. Mm-hmm. Um, so Karen Saravis had put McKenzie away and shut the gate at 1018, but the mailman is saying there was no McKenzie and a wide open gate 25 minutes later. And Scott is at work on his computer during this time. So it had to be Lacey who opened the gate. So say Karen did put Mackenzie in the back or whatever. Uh-huh. Like maybe Lacey was like, oh shit, I forgot something. Ran back inside. Mackenzie's in the yard with his leash on. He's ready to go, but she's getting something. She goes back inside for a second. Karen sees the dog, puts him in the back, but then Lacey's ready to go walking and she comes back to get Mackenzie. You get what I'm saying? Yes. So it was like a weird... It's I hate I hate stuff like that. It's just like a weird set of circumstances. Yes. So um, that's what I'm picturing whenever I hear this news. Um, so before the mailman's notes were found, the perspective was that it was more likely and stronger a stronger piece of circumstantial evidence that Karen Service was accurate with receipts from the stores that she visited that day, and, and so she was accurate in saying that the 1018 timeline is what they're going to work off of. Um, and where the other witnesses didn't have an exact time they saw Lacey, so they were just completely disregarded. Mm-hmm. Um, but now the mailman backs up the other eyewitnesses, which basically comes down to the idea that Lacey was alive after 1018 and was walking McKenzie during that time uh, between 1030 and 1050. Um, so they go along with a, this idea that she did, in fact, go walking between 1020 and 1050. And... Um, Then this is brought up again. This is where it gets super intense. So get ready. Buckle up. 516 Covina, the Medina's home. They left at 1033. I have got to go. We're 46 minutes in. I'm just going to leave it there, y'all. Do do with this what you want because I can't even talk. Um, So they left at 1033 on December 24th, 2002. Uh, Diane Jackson reports the burglary in progress um, by short, darker skinned people in a van out front. She called at 1140 a.m. on the 24th. So between 1033 and 1140, something was going on at the Medina's house. The burglary took place on the 26th, though, according to the two men that they arrested. And at the start uh, of being questioned, like before they even said anything, the cops, the guy said who was arrested, the guy says, uh, Right at the start, I had nothing to do with the pregnant girl. And that's Stephen Todd. So Stephen Todd is one of the guys they arrested. And and right at the jump, he says, I had nothing to do with the pregnant girl. Okay, but wait. When did they arrest him? They arrested them on the, I believe it was the 29th, right? So they might have already heard about what the fuck was going on. Oh, yeah. Yeah. For sure. So that fucking makes sense that he would say something. But just like that. wait. I know, but it's so weird to be like, um, I didn't do it. You know well, what I mean? Like, it's you don't. These are the same people that fucking robbed a place during broad daylight. So yeah. Oh, <laughs> you're right. Um, 
So, the cop disregarded the statement and said, I'm here to talk about the burglary, not the pregnant girl. So a couple weeks before the trial was over, an inmate referred to as Mr. R from Modesto County Jail, um, he had information about the burglary, uh, and he mentioned a Sean Tinbrick. They hit on when they, okay, so then they, they take that, they take Sean Tinbrick and type it into the system, whatever the system is, I don't know how this works, and they hit on Lieutenant Aponte, remember I mentioned him earlier, he was on uh, he was a watch commander in a state prison. A few weeks after Lacey went missing, he had sent a tip to the police, the tip that I just talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. So Carl Jensen, the PI, spoke with Aponte. Sean Tinbrick was having a phone conversation with his brother, Adam, who happened to be a close friend of Stephen Todd, who did the burglary job. Adam mm-hmm. said Stephen had told him Lacey confronted them during the burglary and threat- and they threatened her. So they're talking, they're talking like amongst themselves. At that point, Sean Tinbrick screamed at the brother to shut up. This could be monitored. We're we're not going to talk about that. And that's when Aponte taped it and called in the tip. But they never saw the fucking tip. Like, that's what sucks. So um, that's all that they mentioned because the guy told him, shut up. We Mm -hmm. can't talk about that. Um, In January 20. In January, on the 22nd, 2003, Lieutenant Aponte's tip had to, he had to call in twice before he got a call back, and he gave the Modesto police a copy of the tape. The police say they didn't have a copy of the tape, and Aponte doesn't have a copy, so it's missing. Um, They don't even know uh, who called Aponte back, and this would have been solid evidence that the burglary was directly linked to her disappearance. Diana Campos worked at the hospital and was on a smoke break, and so then it goes on to talk about what she saw. Mm -hmm. She's positive that she saw Lacey. Like, she saw someone uh, walking the dog, and she described the dog having a white mark on the chest, and that's Mackenzie. Like, Mackenzie has a white mark on the chest, Mm -hmm. a golden retriever. Mm -hmm. And she knows she saw her at 1045. Um, It was a round person with black leggings and a white smock around 1045. And um, Tom Harshman said that he had seen a woman being held outside a van by two men uh, and they were holding her and it looked like she had been urinating and then they were putting her back in the van. Why the fuck? Like they kidnapped her. And so he called uh, and this was called in while she was already missing and the jury knew about none of this. This is what the problem is. It's like nobody could have this influence what they thought about Scott because it was just completely not brought into the court case Mm -hmm. that's that messed me up because they even showed kind of like a reenactment of um a lacy uh who's supposed to be lacy and then two men like trying to put her back in the van and it's just so scary to think about like that tom harshman could have seen her right before she was murdered so did that man describe what the van looked like no, Uh-oh. it just they just say van. I'm sure there's notes and everything, but uh, in the docu series, they did not describe what kind of van. Um, and they just show it as a regular white van. Um, well, because didn't they? Wasn't there like a specific description of the van that was in front of the house when they were doing the burglary? I'm pretty sure it was just a white. Once again, just a white van, like a generic. Oh, they didn't really go into detail, oh, like oh, the bumper was crooked or. And the thing is, that's what sucks too. Is like you never know when you need to be paying that much attention to something because yeah. you don't know what's gonna come in handy. Like, yeah. 
That's so sad. So one of the forensic aspects of this case was the size of the baby. So here we go again with um, trying to figure out what happened with the baby. Uh, They measured the body and tried to figure out the date of death using the last ultrasound, the size of the baby at his last ultrasound, and comparing uh, that size to the size he was found in. They needed to know when the baby was killed. The prosecution's Dr. Gregory DeVore, who I mentioned earlier, this is where he fudged up. He used a formula to measure the baby's bones, which tells you exactly how old the fetus is and when it stops growing. His calculations led him to deliver, to deliver, oh my His calculations led him to believe that Connor stopped growing on December 24th. So that's what the prosecution wanted. So they left it at that. Didn't even question him. Mm -hmm. The problem was the doctor used the wrong formula and measured the wrong bones. What do you, how do you do that? So Habeas lawyers contacted, I have got to get somebody to smack me right now. Um, The heaviest lawyers contacted Dr. Gianti, uh, who came to this formula. Like, he's the doctor that created this formula that's accurate in measuring the age of a fetus Mm -hmm. uh, using bones. But so when they spoke to him, he broke it down uh, at what was incorrect and then did it himself the correct way using the average of three bones as opposed to just one bone, which makes sense to me but Mm -hmm. i guess dr devore just didn't know or didn't care or something the way to do it is you take the average of the measurements of the femur humerus and tibia but dr devore just used the femur um he concluded that connor may have been alive as late as january 3rd 2000 oh my god He concluded that Connor may have been alive as late as January 3rd, 2003. 2003? Uh, yeah, like, okay, because, you oh, know, I 2002. I it was 2002. I, I know. It was 2001. <laughs> I was like, what the fuck? That would have been crazy. Oh, my goodness. Um, oh, If somebody just, like, kidnapped Connor and, like, killed only Lacey and Connor's, like, out there somewhere. Oh I God. wish. Anyway. I mean, not that it would have been better. I I would obviously rather have them both alive. But if they could have just had Connor alive, Mm -hmm. even that would have just been. But okay, so Gianti said that he could have been alive as late as January 3rd, 2003, which is a big difference from the December 24th, 2002 thing that they had said but once again the jury didn't get to hear this they had no idea that dr devore did the incorrect method Mm -hmm. so and then they bring in rochelle nice uh who had falsified her answers during jury selection whether this was on purpose or on accident uh they have no idea but juror misconduct was on the habeas so they took this into consideration and the question on the questionnaire before she was allowed to be on the jury asked have you ever been involved in a legal proceeding as a witness or in some other capacity and she said no and then she was emotional during some of the testimony on tape they show how she was asked uh what was the hardest part of the testimony for her and she said little man that's what i call him i call connor uh little man and that was the hardest part of the testimony so she was very deeply affected by the baby aspect of the whole case, and it was discovered that she filed a request for a temporary injunction when she was four and a half months pregnant. She was scared for the safety of her unborn child, is what the paperwork said, and she took um, an ex-girlfriend of her baby daddy to court, or her children's father, um, the ex-girlfriend to court, and filed a restraining order, and it was her... Uh, 
the lady was, I guess, harassing her or something. So the jury questionnaire answers, if answered falsely, it's just jury misconduct, like plain and simple. Like you're not supposed to lie. You're supposed to like really think about it. So she mentioned that it didn't even occur to her. Like it was completely out of her head whenever she was answering those questions. Mm-hmm. Um, defense counsel didn't know what they uh, what they should have known is plain and simple. Like they they didn't know that she had some background in feeling scared as a pregnant woman. They don't know if it was intentional or not, like I mentioned, but it was breaking the rules, plain and simple. Uh, the docuseries closes with asking if there was anything to regret with the case. Um, Amber is asked if she thinks he is guilty or innocent, and she simply says she gave her honest testimony and it's not her place to say. There were 12 jurors who saw the evidence and made that decision. That's a good so, answer. That's really good. I feel like, like if... If she wasn't like um, coached or something, like wow, that was yeah. that's a really good way to say it. Because I think I would say the same thing. I um, would not. I would fuck that whole thing up and be like, "That motherfucker did it." You would be Rochelle Nice um, just because he what? lied to me. Like that what would she be saying? my petty ass. Right. Oh, true. Being the other woman yeah. and it being like such a big deal. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah, Rochelle Nice. What does she say? She's like, guess what, Scott? San Quentin is your new home. And like, she's just being all kinds of, and the guy jumps in like her fucking uh, wingman is like, yeah, it's illegal to kill your wife in the state of California. I'm like, it's illegal. shut it's up, illegal. bro. I know. Like, guys, he's gonna, like, what are you doing? But anyway. So wait, did you know though that like being able to figure out how um how old like a fetus really is is actually really oh I guess it's hard, but it's also like not an exact science. So like whenever you go to like get like like the ultrasound or whatever, they just guesstimate what the baby could no. possibly be. Like how far along that it could sense. be, and it's by the they measurements. Can't, like, measure the bones. Yeah, they can just—they they don't know how fast each fetus grows. Yeah, exactly. Some, and then you—they don't know. Was so big. Oh my God. <laughs> they don't know like um, when you exactly ovulated, so they yeah the age of yeah uh, the date of fertilization or whatever yeah. isn't always exact. Yeah. So everything they do like based on like your last period, but still, even then, if your periods are like irregular, it, you it, you could be like, it could be like four weeks, but you ovulated like literally the week before. I don't I don't know. It's just I know, yeah yes. It's so it's not always so accurate. Yeah, and then I, like even whenever they're about to be born, like they're just they because they don't they round off to forty weeks. But they don't actually mm-hmm. know if that's how And sometimes you have to be yeah. induced or sometimes yeah. you just have to wait. Yeah. So that's why I'm – that part, he said yeah. it could be – he could have been alive until January 3rd or whatever. Like he Based on the size know. of his Yeah. It's just he could have died. Because I mean, he could have just grown pretty big by eight months. Yeah. The, yeah. There's that's no – he has no idea basically. Yeah. Uh, he has no real Yeah, idea. you're right. And neither did that other you're dude. Right. He said definitively he said whatever <laughs> fucking day it was and the 24th. Yeah, and he doesn't fucking know either. And he clearly didn't. Very exactly right. 
Yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. They they used that measurement and compared it to his last ultrasound, but within that time, who knows, you know, yeah. maybe she had a different diet or the baby was just growing a lot faster than uh, he had previously been growing. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, you're completely right. This is all just, um, it all depends on what hypothesis backs up whoever side. So, you know, with the de- the defense being Scott didn't kill them on the 24th, them hearing that the baby could have been alive as late as as January 3rd, they're like, oh, great. That's great. Use that. But they couldn't. But with the defense, they incorrectly calculated as uh, December 24th, but they said use that because we want him to have died that day because then Scott would have done it. So you're exactly right. But as a juror, can you ask like, okay, but doing is being able to measure a fetus and like definitively getting an answer from that as like how old they are mm-hmm. or whatever or like how something similar That's to that what sucks. you're you're supposed to ha- trust that they know what they're doing that uh sucks. and because you're not allowed to you're not allowed to do any outside research i don't i'm pretty sure you can't do any outside research for sure on the crime or like the people involved mm-hmm. but you i really don't think you can like ask that research that kind of stuff but like either you can't ask that in court like you can't ask okay well we need I to you know to like the attorney the people that are up there questioning whoever's on the stand, like, okay, doctor, whatever, mm-hmm. how the fuck do you know? Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, I think if, that's the only way. What if they don't do that then? Then you're fucked. Just like here. They have no <gasps> they have no access to any of this stuff. The stuff that was omitted from the from the trial or not seen or not heard or not found mm-hmm. by the trial dates. So that's what really sucks it's about really this. Scary. And um it is because it's like how often does this happen? But it's like smaller cases. Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, like get framed. Like I mean, I don't even. Oh, it's just like Gone Girl. But like that's really scary. Yeah. I know. Um, yeah, it is. It could be literally you're at the wrong place at the wrong time, yeah. and it's just all fucked up. Yeah, um, like there's you just have terrible. I'd be like, just put me in jail. I don't even. I don't want to fight this. It's not a. It <laughs> you would just roll over. I would. I'd be like, this is too much work. Yeah. Y'all don't believe me. Fine. Yeah. At least I get meals and a bed. <laughs> Unless, they, but then there's Scott, and he got put on death row, so I can't always rely on that. Be like, dang, you want to kill me over that? But okay, so. <sighs> um, beep beep beep. Okay, so yeah, Amber Fry uh, gave the perfect answer for that. Uh, there were twelve jurors; they did the job that they were supposed to, and that's it. Um, she doesn't she doesn't want to say either way if Scott is guilty or innocent. Mm-hmm. Jackie Peterson, Scott's mother, passed away in October of 2013. Her health had been deteriorating since the trial. She had Hodgkin uh, Hodgkin's lymphoma. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is a cancer that attacks the lymphatic system, weakening your immune system. So she was just kind of wasting away, and it was just very sad. But even on her deathbed, she she feels in her heart that Scott is innocent. Um, the series ends with Sharon Rocha discussing how much she still misses Lacey. Like it's not, it hasn't gotten any easier at all. She misses her as much now as she did when she first went missing. Every single day, she thinks about her and misses her. And one of her best friends, Lacey's best friends, recently got married. Uh, during the docu series, anyway, and at the wedding, uh, 
Sharon describes seeing one dragonfly circling above, mm-hmm. um, right on the edge of the roof, and then a second one joins the first one, mm-hmm. and she believed that it was Lacey and Connor. Oh. And the spectacle of the whole case overshadowed the investigation, and that just isn't justice for anyone. That's what I put. The California uh, Attorney General was responded to Scott Sabia's petition on August 10th, 2017, and it will be reviewed by the Supreme Court of California in the coming months. So, as we know, he has now been, uh, his death sentence has been reversed, and here's what happens next. So I'm going to open this thing that I found here. <clears throat> the Mod- the Modesto Bee has helped me out a lot, so shout out to them. It's a local paper that I've been using to read up on this stuff. So, um, at this point, when this article came out, mm-hmm. it was August 29th, 2020, oh. and uh, it gives kind of like a, a rem- like remind everybody what happened, yada, yada. But then what happens next with Scott after his death sentence was reversed? The wait continues for a court to hear Scott Peterson's petition for habeas corpus. So like I said, everything that I just mentioned, uh, a a new fresh set of eyes has been looking at the whole case, even the stuff that wasn't used in the trial, uh, which introduces new evidence purporting to show the conviction or sentence was wrong. Gardner said that the the petition can either be heard by the California Supreme Court or get sent back to the county superior court, and there is no time limit on when it can be heard. Both Peterson and the attorney general's office, which represented the state in the Peterson's appeal, can petition the U.S. Supreme Court to review the California Supreme Court's opinion. They have 150 days to petition the court for review, um, typically 90 days, but the time frame has been extended due to the coronavirus pandemic. Um, Neither side has made a decision on whether they will. Um... They can also retry the penalty phase of the trial, but uh, they said she won't make a decision on that until after the attorney general and Gardner make a decision regarding the review by the U.S. Supreme Court. And this was Flatiger. Flatiger, I guess, is one is one of the attorney generals. One of the attorneys, I guess. For now, Scott Peterson's sentence effectively becomes life without possibility of parole. Mm. So he's still technically on death row in San Quentin. Uh, at least until Flatiger decides whether to pursue a new penalty phase trial. Um, California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation spokeswoman Terry Thornton said Thursday. So um, at that point, August, it was just a waiting game on how they wanted to go about it. Um, wow. But that's still a big deal. That That's still a big deal that they are taking the time to look over the whole thing again. Jeez. That, yeah, that is freaking nuts. Yep. So, wow. Let me see here. I found the serial. Um, this I want to call it like a serial kidnapper for those pregnant women. But then it ended up being murder. I'm pretty sure. Let me see. For most of them, if not all. Or maybe they were just never found. Okay, so women missing in the Modesto area. The idea that a serial killer is responsible for Lazy's death was generally 
uh, scoffed at. People find it hard to believe that a serial killer would target pregnant women. These women might think twice if they knew how many pregnant women are missing in California. These people might think twice. Okay, so we have Evelyn Hernandez, pregnant, found in the San Francisco Bay, fetus not found, five-year-old son still missing. So even like a whole family pretty much uh, went missing and then she was found dead. Um, Janine Harms, South Bay, 42 years old, disappeared July 21st, 2001. Body not found. Skull found much later in San Mateo County. Um, and then it has a link for an update. Tony Clark, pregnant, disappears. Karen Modafi, last seen San Francisco or SF lands in 1997. Karen, Kristen Smart, San Luis Obispo, Cal Poly student, the one that they were trying to link to Scott, remember? Mm-hmm. Uh, Tara Smith, 16 years old, vanished August 22nd, 1998. Uh, Heather Marie Carpenter, 22 years old, August 2003. Angelina Evans, eight months pregnant. She disappeared from Sacramento in late 2001. She went for a walk and never returned. Hmm. Interesting. Um, Sacramento police should have information on this missing individual. Consuelo Lomelli, eight months pregnant, last seen May 3rd, 2002. In Tolaire, near Fresno, three daughters, unknown whereabouts. Guadalupe Arreyes, eight months pregnant, last seen November 26, 2001, Longview, Washington. One daughter, whereabouts unknown. Jeanette Gomez Espeleta, eight months pregnant, last seen November 17, 1998, Fullerton, California. Ornath Murphy, uh, husband is also missing, last seen December 16, 2001, aboard her vessel Sola 3, which was docked in Jack London Square. Ornath is missing with her husband, Kieran Murphy. Um, interesting. Jack London Square is in the Berkeley, Oakland, San Francisco Bay Area. Wendy Jamie Abrams, Nika, Nisha, Nishikai. Uh, last seen October 31st, 89, Berkeley Police Department Reporting Agency. Amparo Aguilar, last seen December 20th, 1999, East Palo Alto. Yes, I don't, re- I don't really hear that name too often, Amparo. Yeah. Kristen Madaffery went missing June 23rd, 1997. Kathy Irene Sweet, 32, had been dead only a few hours when a Stanislaus, Stanislaus, whatever the heck, county sheriff's de- deputy found her nude body inside a pickup pickup parked in a north modesto almond orchard january 14 1998 sweet also used the name kathy irene meadows and sometimes went by the name cindy her body was found in the 3900 block of coffee road near silverwood mobile home park uh january 18 2003 interesting tr nikkei Rowe. detective said friday they believe someone dumped her body in a walnut orchard Wow, the orchard ones are interesting. And then there's Lindsay Eklund, 22, disappeared from the family's um, Placentia home on February 16, 2001. Ruth Bender, 33, was last seen getting into a green van at the Greyhound bus station in Modesto. Ruth Lehman, 37, went to Modesto's store for a Coke and never returned. Mm-hmm. Some things in common. Uh, one problem with identifying serial killer in police departments uh, is they operate in a vacuum. So like police departments don't share information between counties, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So they're not going to know who has what in common because then they might could work together. Like, have you seen that show Unbelievable on Netflix? Um, uh, no. It's uh, about a serial rapist, but this girl thinks that it didn't happen because it's just so strange how he just came in and then left and she was like left alive. Mm-hmm. 
And so they didn't believe her. And so she took back her, it's like a huge thing. It's a good show, but that had to do with um, police departments, not sharing information on rapes in the areas that they were in so that they could have caught the guy a lot sooner. But anyway, um, college university of Berkeley, Cal Poly or university of Davis were some of the ones in common health conscious. They were in athletic clubs, gyms, parks, running, uh, and they went on walks. Apparently some of these women, uh, nurses training, articulate, attractive. Many were pregnant or thought to be pregnant. Fuck. Another common factor is the number of bodies found in water, suggesting a fascination with water or cleanliness. Um, and yeah, it just goes into detail about that. Uh, Monroe apparently used a hacksaw to dismember Milan. He put her torso, arms, and legs in the fishing pond at a veteran's memorial lake, and the hands were found in Monroe's car. The head and feet were not found at either location. So they just like start bringing up examples. So I just thought it was interesting how many people in even just in California went missing some of those women pregnant and they didn't look they didn't think to even consider that Lacey fell into that. Right. That is really weird. Maybe they did consider it and they just didn't think that she that that happened. Maybe. Maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. I just think that they had tunnel vision because Scott was such an easy target because he was just such a dork, like saying dumb stuff, acting weird, like lying. Well, that trying to cover is an up. indication to any police officer that something is not right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's a shady character for mm-hmm. sure. I mean, he was able to act like nothing was going on. That still bothers me the most. But um, yeah. Uh, so what do you think about the whole thing, the whole um, docu-series point of view that they, how they broke everything down and like revisited certain things? Um, I I think I've actually watched it. Um, oh, no, I didn't. I listened to it on uh, True Crime Obsessed. Nice. Yeah, they did a really good job. Um, or, well, they made me laugh the whole time. But um, – <laughs> I, when I first listened to it, I was like, oh, like maybe he didn't do it, but I don't know. The way they presented everything was very like leaning towards that he didn't do it. So I feel like they just Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. tried really hard to make it like, well, he didn't do it. Because some yeah. points I'm like, okay, y'all are like really grasping there. Because like, I don't know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But that's part, what the main, yeah. I don't know. I didn't. For a second, it made me think that maybe he didn't do it. But then I'm like, okay, he did it. Like he had to. But how? What did I say the last time? I think somebody helped him. Then he had, then he had somebody yeah, help him. Yeah, I think he had somebody help him. I don't think that everybody was so hung up about the day that he went to the marina that Mm -hmm. I honestly, I feel like he did it just to throw everybody off. Hmm. Especially because he had a receipt. Like, I don't know. It was just like conveniently, oh, I have this fucking receipt here. Like, I don't know. It was just weird. But I think he had somebody help him. And I don't know, like, I I don't know. I don't, 
I guess we'll never really fucking know, but I do think that yeah, that's true. somebody helped him. Unless somebody comes forward with new information. Like, I mean, some of this stuff that they didn't talk about or see in the trial um, due to, like, mistakes or um, they just omitted stuff because they thought it wasn't important. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think they did that people- shit fucked up. That whole thing was fucked up. Yeah, that's what bothers me because if – Fine. Like if all of this stuff was out on the out in the open, out on the table, and they still found him guilty, fine. But it's like they didn't even get to see all of this stuff yeah. or ask questions or, you know, like, I don't know, somebody's got to come forward with new information to add to any of this in order for them to really think that he's innocent, to be honest. Like, I feel like after seeing this and, and reading up on some of this stuff that they found, mm-hmm. um, he might have not done it. And that's what sucks. Like I, there's no way to know like if he did or if he didn't, but it just really goes to show like how much it can affect your perspective. Like looking at everything instead of just certain pieces. So yeah. Um, I don't know. Sad, sad story. Yeah. But did he, how did he react whenever they, like gave him a sentence do you know uh okay so the initial like the initial time whenever they said guilty um he describes it as feeling it it, he had some kind of amazing horrible like feeling that he was just falling backwards in his chair and like for like he was falling forwards in his chair and it was like never ending like he had like a sense of like just dread and uh, he just felt awful because he thought he was going to be okay, I think, because that's what he said. Like, since he didn't do it, he wasn't really worried about it, but they really just hated him. And so wow. whenever they read the verdict, he was surprised and also um, unprepared for how horrible it was going to feel. Okay. But, I mean, I feel- he feels that way, I'm sure, about Lacey and right. Connor if he didn't, if he didn't do it. But uh, at the, the whole thing. same time, I mean, I I was just talking about how the way people react to shit is going to be different every time. But mm-hmm. it's interesting what he said because most people, if they know that they didn't do something and they're being accused of it, like you're about to go to jail. Like, why would you not like fucking snap? Mm-hmm. Like, why would you not be like you are? You, you cannot take me to jail. I didn't fucking do this. Like. Yeah, but it, but then they would think that that looks weird too. I'm sure they would be I'm like, sure. "Why is he getting so aggressive yeah. and defensive?" I mean, I there's no right or wrong. I don't know. I mean, but yeah, the he whole could have just been was, in complete shock. Like, yeah, yeah, that's what I think. But I think that there just wasn't enough evidence to kill him, like yeah, to put him to uh, death. Yeah, I think that's true. I there wasn't. It was all over the fucking place, and. I, yeah, I don't think that they should have sent, but it, it got to overturned mm-hmm. anyways. Yeah, they're taking another look at it. And as far as I know, let me look it up real quick just so I don't wrap this up and then there's something I didn't say, but let me see uh, what's going on with the case right now, unless there's no updates. They have uh, potentially new suspects as of November 20th, 2020. Oh. So there's a lot more going on. We could we could do this all day. I could do a part four just on currently what's going on, but 
No way. And pri- a private investigator hired by Scott Peterson's family has identified new suspects in the death of Lacey Peterson. Reporters who gathered in Modesta Courthouse for Scott Peterson's first hearing since his death sentence was overturned were surprised when his sister-in-law, Janie Peterson, revealed that a PI had uncovered new suspects in a murder case that captured the world's attention in the early 2000s. So that this is on uh, kron4.com. Uh... Oh, yeah, there's a ton. Court docs detail new evidence for potential new trials. Do you see, like, they're going to bring in new stuff, not just what wasn't covered. One reporter, uh, when one reporter asked Janie Peterson the name of the new suspect, she declined to say, obviously. Um, but in an email exchange with K-Ron 4 this week, Janie Peterson was more candid. She said that the suspects were traced to the Medina burglary and the Aponte tip. So... Technically, this isn't new information. It's just new to the case. It's pretty much what we just talked about, I'm assuming, where that conversation between the inmates uh, was intercepted by Lieutenant Aponte and reported to the police department, but they did nothing about it. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming that's what they're talking about. And there's a Scott Peterson Appeal Facebook page to read more details about the new suspects and the ongoing appeal, I'm assuming. So, yeah, there's just... there's. This is an ongoing thing. They're not giving up. The appeal is what's going on right now. So we just got to keep our eye on that. But uh, yeah, that was definitely a doozy doing three. I hadn't done. I think this is our first multi-parter, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Or Um, for three, yeah. Yeah. Wow. So I don't think I'm forgetting anything. I hope I'm not. If I remember anything, I'll put it on the Instagram. But um, I hope that you guys let me know what you think because this was – I had to – I mean, I didn't have to do shit. I just watched okay. – I'm honest. Like, I, I watched that docuseries, and then if I had a question about something, I just Googled whatever and inserted it. But um, it was definitely a new way to see the whole thing, yeah. and it freaked me out. It just freaked me out because – if that's what the justice system does with the media and everybody watching, that's scary as hell. You better hope you don't get caught. Yeah. Well, don't do crimes. Don't do crimes. But if you're going to do crimes, make sure that you're ready for this kind of shit. Because, hmm. well, I hope you guys let us know what you think on our Instagram or Twitter. All right. Well, um, happy holidays, you guys. This was a very grim and gruesome crime that I decided to cover for the month of December, but hopefully it didn't bore you guys too bad. It might bring a little uh, more to the conversation with this case. And if we keep up with all the current things going on with the case, this is an ongoing conversation. So keep your eyes open. And uh, if I left anything out or, you know, y'all have something to add, please put it on the Instagram comments. Um And yeah, I hope you guys enjoy your Christmas, your New Year's. Stay safe. Everybody have a happy and healthy holiday and New Year. Hopefully, I'm so happy that 2020 is almost over. Jesus. Mm -hmm. So weird. It feels like it took 10 years for it to end. I actually feel like it went by really fast. I only felt that way during the holidays, but that's how I always feel, I feel like. All right, guys, make sure you give us a follow on Instagram, on Twitter. Give us a review on Apple Podcasts and check us out on every podcasting platform there is and let your friends know. Thanks for listening, guys. So did we give you the creeps?